So we've been here together now for a couple of days. This might, on reflection, seem a little longer than that. Engaging in practices of awareness and presence and making contact with our experience through the different forms of sitting and moving, of meditation and qigong, walking and standing. And sometimes the question occurs, you know, what are we doing here? What's all this about? Why would I spend my days and my nights? And it seems uh, every moment we're being encouraged to engage in this way. And there are perhaps many ways we could answer that quite reasonable question. Although sometimes when we ask it, it's, uh, it's not really a question. It's more like, wow, this is quite challenging. Why am I doing this? What, what, what would be worth putting ourselves into a situation that presents this kind of challenge? Why would we do that? And really, the practices we're engaged in are an invitation to discover a way of being in the world in which there is peace and freedom and for which it's really worthy of our engagement, our courage, our willingness to apply ourselves as as we have been doing here. And in terms of this path, and teaching and practice, it's very much understood as a path of wisdom. It's not to say that there isn't an equal place of compassion in it and heartfulness which we've emphasized and spoken about in different ways. The importance of kindliness and sensitivity and opening to our experience as it unfolds. And yet what we also recognize is that there's a certain transformative potential that comes through understanding. Understanding the way things are. And it's through understanding the way things are that we are able to harmonize our life with the actuality of how the world is. So far as we don't really understand the way things are, we find ourselves in conflict with, often in collision with. And it's painful, it's difficult, it's confusing. And it seems it takes a while to understand what's going on. Part of this, and I think it's really important to understand, is we don't get it right all at once. It takes us time. There's no instant solution to the situation. You know, If it could be written down and handed out, we would have done it. We'd have all gone home. But it's not like that. We have to learn it in the very grit of our lives. And there's a, there's a lovely story, I think, that illustrates how this process works in a, in a simple way, or at least describes it. Um, and it's a story of a, a Zen student, a Zen meditation student, had been practicing very enthusiastically for many years and finally had the opportunity to meet the, uh, the, the senior master of his tradition and the student was very happy. It was a great honour and a privilege and he only had a, a short interview and the opportunity to ask just a few brief questions. So he came full of sort of anticipation, excitement and just a little bit of fear um, to the master and she was sitting there looking at him very still. And he came to her and he said, Master, can you tell me, what's the most important thing to develop, to cultivate? And she looked at him, she said, hmm, discernment. 
good judgment. That's what you need to develop. He says, oh, yes, thank you, of course. Good judgment, yes, yes. To make good decisions, of course. She said, and then he said to her, okay, how do I develop good judgment? Zen Master looked at him, she said, hmm, experience. Oh, experience, of course, of course. How do I get experience? Bad judgment. (laughs) Seen from that perspective, it's all useful. And so, even when we think we're not learning, we are learning. If we take the attitude that that's what we're here for, it all becomes part of that. Even when we're struggling and we're not quite sure why things are the way they are or how to respond most usefully to them, the willingness to learn is really one of the most fundamentally transformative and potent qualities we bring. And so there's a real encouragement here to to pay attention to our experience because it's through the very stuff of our life that we do this learning. It's not book learning. It's not ideas learning. As I said, it's not something we can just tell each other and know out of the words. It's got to be in the lived experience. And for the most part, why it's hard, why it's difficult to really see clearly what's happening here is that we tend to skim over the surface of experience very quickly. And we tend to form conclusions about what's happening based on sometimes the skimpiest or scantiest evidence or information. We're very quick to try and know what it is and package it up and say this is how it is. And when we believe those very quick assumptions based on often surface appearances, we find ourselves suffering, struggling, in conflict with the actuality that we haven't seen so clearly. And I had a very uh, salutary experience quite some years ago now, but I remember it very well. Um, In this regard, I was sitting in meditation early one morning, and I think it was winter, well, it was certainly winter, I think it was February, Um, and it was a cold, frosty morning. I'd been practicing and the light was coming through the window as I finished my meditation and opened my eyes. I was looking out through the window and I saw on the windowsill a snail. And just coming out of the meditation, I was like, oh, that's interesting. A sense of just first interest. And then, what's it doing there? You know how the mind is. How did it get here? Why is it in here? And I noticed my mind sort of kicking into a cycle of thinking about rather than just seeing the snail. I was looking at it and thought, oh, yeah, well, it's obvious how it got in here. The window's open. And why is the window open? And in my mind just went through this quick thought, oh, oh, well, actually, the window was, it was kind of swollen. The paint had been flaking off, so I'd I'd had to trim it with a plane and repaint it. And because the paint was wet, I couldn't close the window, so I left it open, even though it was actually really cold. And, And I said, oh, that's why the window's open. That's how the snail got in. Why did the snail get in? It's because it's cold out there. <laughs> Obvious. I, I didn't think I'd seen snails in winter before. They normally you know, go somewhere else and hibernate. Um, but anyway, there's a snail. It's inside. And I thought, okay, so it's come in to get out of the cold. That makes sense. But 
There's nothing in here for it to eat. It's going to starve to death. And I was sort of watching this little snail. I could see its little eyes, those little beady eyes on stalks and that the beautiful sort of translucent spiral pattern on its shell. And I was, I was feeling for it. I was sort of really concerned. Like, if it stays here, it's going to starve. If it goes back out there, it's going to freeze. What am I going to do? And I was really concerned. And then I had this idea. I thought, I know. I put it in my neighbour's greenhouse. <laughs> Not being a gardener, I didn't think there was anything wrong with the idea. It seemed like a compassionate thing to do. And I was really, it was just like this moment of relief. Ah, there we are, resolve the problem. So I got up from my cushion and reached towards the snail, which turned out to be a wood shaving. <laughs> Curled up from when I trimmed the window. And there was this moment when that whole sense of concern and sense of, I've solved your problems, <laughs> burst. Just poof. And I was left. It was quite impactful. It was quite a... <laughs> this whole little being who I'd worried about, who I'd planned how to help, at possible risk to my relationship with my neighbours, <laughs> didn't exist. Didn't exist, ever, for a moment. And that way in which we so quickly, you know, I'd seen its little beady eyes. There was two little sort of pointy bits on the end of the piece of um, spiral wood shaving. Amazing. And so, you know, we see something, we think that's what's there. And so often it's not. Because I was mostly relating to my ideas about it. I was thinking, my mind was going, I wasn't really looking carefully at the snail, obviously. That was quite some years ago. I still had pretty good vision then. And this is something that the Buddha spoke about for us as a really important area to attend to, to look and see how it is that when we just very quickly pay attention, we don't really pay attention, when we just sort of skim over the surface of experience, imagining that we know what's going on and what we're looking at and what to, how to respond to it, very often we're out of sync with the reality. And all sorts of suffering, all sorts of struggle and pain and distress arises out of this in so many ways. And so the Buddha spoke about three particular areas in which we get caught, three major misperceptions we could say when we don't understand what's happening in these areas, we get entangled with our life. We collide with the reality, which is other than as we imagine it to be, often. And the first element of this, which is a, a common and familiar um, theme of Dharma teachings, and many of you will know well from, from this, is that the experiences we encounter, we very often tend to relate to them as if they're permanent. When in fact, they're changing and impermanent. <clears throat> it's a very obvious statement. It's not a surprise to anyone to hear, oh yeah, things change. But so often we live our life and we relate to things as if they're not going to. Or as if they might continue forever. And of course, when things are difficult, we often relate to them as if 
they're going to be here forever. And we struggle with something that's hard to bear in the heart or tender or downright painful, not because we can't meet and be with the experience in the present, because we can, we actually already are, but because we project in our mind that it's going to continue to be like this. What if it's like this for the whole sitting? What if this pain in my knee goes on all day and the next day? And we can imagine ourselves being, you know, carted out of Guy House in an ambulance, you know, with some injury. And as Brad said last night, sometimes we really do need to be careful. But other times, it's not the information from our body that we're listening to, which we do need to listen to. It's a whole pattern of reactivity in our mind that's grabbed us. And stop just noticing what's going on in our knee, and we're more worried about what's going to be going on tomorrow or next week. Based on an unquestioned assumption of continuity. So often this happens to us. Likewise, when something arises, did this ever happen for you in the meditation? You know that after a couple of days of practice, sometimes it happens that things start to settle down. It gets a bit quieter. It feels calm, and there's a certain steadiness. And it's like, ah, great, yeah. Oh, it's going to be good from here. Whoa. And before we know it, we're imagining this blissful retreat from here to the end. And not only that, we're starting to plan a long retreat. One month, two months. No, maybe I'll, I'll ordain. I'll go to Thailand. I'll, you know, I'll go the all, you know. And we, we imagine ourselves as some venerable nun or monk sort of sitting in a cave with streams of admirers coming to pay homage. All based on the fact that just for a moment it all settled down, quietened and <laughs> felt okay. And we project it out into the future. Whew. So quickly we do. I've seen my mind do it. Of course when we don't see our mind do it, that's when it's really dangerous. Because then we actually believe that it might be true. And so often this goes on. We imagine things are going to continue. We struggle with the difficult because of our fear of its continuity. We grasp after the enjoyable in the hope that it might go on, that it might last. But it doesn't. It doesn't. When we give attention to the present moment, when we take a little time to settle, to steady, to focus, to really make contact, we start to see that things are changing. We start to see that experiences are coming and going, that what we even call our breath is a whole flow and ripple of separate, changing, flickering, dissolving sensations. That a movement in the qigong isn't a movement, it's a flow of tiny little movements, each of which are made up of many more little moments of experience, each of which are different. And we tend to kind of make things into something solid because we don't see that they're changing. They're constantly changing. Everything, everything around us is in flux, in flow. And there's a, there's a teaching from the Mahayana, the, nor, the later northern schools of Buddhism, called the, uh, the Diamond Sutra. There's a beautiful stanza in it. It really touches me, speaks to me, and sense of really getting into contact with what this is. Because we all know that things change, but we don't necessarily live that knowledge. 
We don't necessarily live that understanding. And it's the, the stanza goes like this. Thus you should look upon this fleeting world. A drop of dew, a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a phantom, and a dream. And that kind of, in a way, flow of images, each of something that just boof, boof, boof. A drop of dew, a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream. A flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a mirage, and a dream. Just that sense of experience. If we were to see how fluid and transient so much of it is, we might start to relate to it, we might start to see it differently. We might start to be less entangled with it and give it less authority over us, over our well-being. And we might start to sense what would be the most useful and appropriate way to engage with it. Because what, when we start to see this, what it suggests to us is that it doesn't make sense to hold on. It doesn't make sense to grasp on, to experience. Even the things that we love, that are sweet and beautiful and precious in this life, are also moving and changing. We can't hold on to them. But that doesn't mean we turn away from them. It doesn't mean we don't allow ourselves to be touched by them. This is, it's important that we do. But as William Blake said, He who binds himself to a joy does the winged life destroy. He who kisses the joy as it flies lives on in eternity's sunrise. Beautiful teaching. Beautiful teaching, that sense of when we take hold of something that gives us joy, it's like we, we destroy its aliveness, it's, the winged life is destroyed. It's like it, our grasping squeezes the very dynamic aliveness out of that which we love or value or appreciate. But when we can allow ourselves to kiss the joy as it flies, like make contact with something beautiful, and that sense of to kiss, it's like there's an intimacy of contact there and a vulnerability when we kiss something. When we allow ourselves to be with or to inhabit that way of meeting experience, to kiss the joy as it flies. It's moving, it's moving. But we don't need to hold on to it because that openness, that vulnerability, that intimacy with what is beautiful and lovely, rather than trying to take hold of it and crushing it, that actually releases it to be what it is. And it releases us to live on in eternity's sunrise. It's the dawn of the timeless that Blake is pointing to. She who binds herself to a joy does the winged life destroy. She who kisses the joy as it flies lives on in eternity's sunrise. So learning here to meet our experience with that intimacy of contact, and that openness, that vulnerability, that we really come forward, enter into it wholeheartedly, and yet seeing that it just moves on and flows and changes. And this morning is different or was different than this afternoon or this evening or tomorrow will be. 
And so to each moment and experience. Learning to let it go. Learning to let it be. It's useful to understand the distinction here. Letting go is more useful in relationship to those things we grasp hold of. When things are difficult, it's more useful to let them be. Because letting go, we tend to think, well, they should go away, shouldn't they, if I've let go of them. And so we're subtly pushing away when we say letting go. It's let it be. It's in its own time. It will move on. It's not up to us. To see those things which are not permanent as being permanent. This is a a mistake we make again and again. And that by paying attention to what's happening here, we have the chance to rectify it. We start to see more clearly. Ah, yeah, if I just stay with things a little longer, we see that they change. If we freeze them into an image in our mind and relate to the concept, well, the concept stays the same. Because we're not actually relating to the experience anymore. Does that make sense? Do you follow how that happens? We kind of extract ourselves from the experience and go into our story about it. So here the encouragement is keep coming back to the experience. Keep coming back to the experience. The second misunderstanding that the Buddha spoke of and that we make so often is to see that which is not capable of giving us lasting satisfaction as having that capacity. Seeing experiences or situations, conditions and circumstances as somehow having the capacity to fulfill us, to meet all our needs, to make us happy forever after, if we can just get them right. And yet no conditions, no circumstances, no conditions, no person can do that for us. Things keep changing. They don't have the capacity to give us that. And yet something in us is very deeply wedded to the hope of that possibility. Very deeply drawn to that. There's a a lovely story of Mullah Nasruddin, who's a a Sufi teaching figure, both a a wise man and something of a fool. One imagines that perhaps his foolishness is simply a way of waking us up to our own. So one day Nasruddin is found um, at the... uh, in the corner of the village square on market day, and his friends come upon him with a large pile of red chilies in front of them. He's picking them up and eating them, one at a time. And his eyes are bloodshot, his nose is streaming. He's obviously in quite a degree of distress. And they come up and say, Mullah, Mullah, what are you doing? And Nazarene looks up, he says, oh, I'm eating these chilies. Picks another one up and puts it in his mouth. And his whole body shudders with the obvious distress and pain of this red-hot chilli. And they say, Mullah, Mullah, we can see you're eating those chilies. Why are you eating these chilies?" And Nasruddin looks up, he says, I keep hoping to find a sweet one. <laughs> Something touching in that. Hopefulness, the innocent sort of sense of maybe the next one will be different. But at a certain point we have to stop and ask ourselves if all the experiences, all the things that we've had or made contact with or been touched by or been involved with, for all their value and perhaps sweetness, if they haven't at this point already brought us to a place of lasting satisfaction, is it really valid to imagine that having more or better Versions of the same kinds of things is really going to do that for us? 
that, you know, maybe a better meditation than the last one or a nicer set of clothes or a better partner or job or house or car or all that. We can sort of, it's fine to enjoy such things. It's appropriate to when we have the good fortune to have such things. But to imagine that they're going to fulfill us, they're going to do it for us, they don't. Things don't do that. They don't have that capacity. And yet, there's something in us just keeps on looking, and I, I find myself fascinated. It, it's, you know, I see it happening here regularly. It happens to me too when I'm on retreat. Sometimes people, or sometimes I, but you know, many of us, might find ourselves reading the label on the tea bag with real fascination, like there's going to be something interesting to be discovered on this. We go to the notice board, and we actually have read the schedule more than once, possibly three or four times. But we look at it, and we read it, and there's almost a rapt interest. It's like, I'm going to learn something really important here. It's this kind of this movement. We're sort of this hungry, looking for the something. Looking for the something. And the unspoken subtext to it is that there is something out there that when I finally get there, when I find it, get hold of it, and get to the end of the sentence, it's going to be just like, ah. Yeah? And there's a temporary relief from the pressure of that pull, that urge, while we're in the sense of hope that maybe this is going to do it. Maybe this next Qigong movement is the one in which it's all going to open out and the energy is going to come flow. I know we're not supposed to be getting the energy, but the energy is all just going to come through. And, you know, it's going to be this one. I can see, I can feel it building. And maybe sometimes... We really are touched by something. But that something being impermanent and not forever also moves on. And we see that habit of mind so clearly. And it's really good to hold it with humour and lightness. We all do this. Even really good meditators. We just get a bit more refined in what we're looking for. We want those really calm, not just the ordinary calmness, but the real calmness, you know. (laughs) Not just a sort of a, a, a gentle, soft feeling, but a really sweet one. You know, it's amazing. No matter what we get, we can immediately imagine just something a little bit better. We think that'll do it. And yet we keep going on forever. And we never come to the end of that process. We never come to the end of it. The condition of the minds that most of us arrive at a retreat with are the evidence of that. It's just spinning and spinning and spinning and there is no stopping. What we have to start to see is that the things we're chasing... Sights and sounds and smells and tastes, even inner experiences of thoughts, of feelings, of sensations. In the end, none of them are going to finally do it for me or for you. In such a way as we think, ah, got it, that's done then. (sighs) Happy and peaceful ever after. No. Understanding is what transforms qualitatively our life. Understanding And amongst that understanding, the sense of if we're not to seek for ultimate satisfaction in things, what would that involve for us? There's an interesting um, sort of passage in Dante's Inferno, which I haven't read, but I've (laughs) heard someone refer to, um, where above the door, which is the entrance to the Inferno, hell, I believe it says, I guess it was in some other language than English, but translates as 
abandon hope, all ye who enter here. And it kind of sounds like, well, you know, it's just got to be miserable going on and say, just get ready for it. That's what the first sense of imagining what that might mean is. It's just, you know, abandon hope. It's just going to be horrible and miserable. That's what we've been told about hell, isn't it? So it makes sense. And yet it might be that those are the instructions for how to actually most optimally be in the condition that one is entering here. It might be that it's not such a horrible, cruel punishment that's being meted out to all these apparently bad people, but that actually it's the instructions say, how do we live in a world that's constantly changing, that's not in our control, and that we can't easily find lasting satisfaction in it? Because things don't last, even the good things. Abandon hope isn't about somehow becoming, you know, oh, it's hopeless or now I should be sort of miserable. It's more about don't project the sense of hopefulness out away from where you are into things or objects, but actually turn back to the sense of where you are. It's like abandoning hope leaves us here. Hope always takes us into the future, but it never escapes from the fear that travels with it. Hope for one thing comes together with fear of its opposite. Can't be parted. Like two sides of a coin. And the effect of that movement of hope and fear, whether the fear leads, but underneath the fear we're hoping it's not going to be like that, whether the hope leads, but under the hope we're fearing the opposite, whichever way we go out, what happens is we leave here. And that is the greatest loss of our lives. So we again and again suggest coming back to see if what we're looking for might be found right where we are. But it's not of the nature of the things we've been pursuing. Understanding that experiences cannot give us lasting satisfaction, we start to turn towards what is it that's having these experiences then? It's an obvious question to ask. Well, if I'm not going to get satisfaction from the experience, what else is there but me to look at here? And when we ask that question, when we turn towards this experience, we really come face to face with the third of the great or major misperceptions, misunderstandings that causes us suffering, that underpins, that underlies so much of the struggle, the conflict, the pain that goes on within us and amongst us and around us. We, when we turn towards what's happening here, tend to think and turn to conceive in a very particular way that isn't just about how we conceive what's happening here, but how we conceive everything. And it takes the form of believing that there are existing separate entities or things, which we might call 
selves, me or you, us or them, this or that. And the, the major misunderstanding that we get entangled in is imagining that those appearances are true. To imagine things as having selfhood or separate, independent, isolated existence when in fact they do not. This is the perhaps most profound and challenging area of understanding that is pointed to in these teachings. And what it rests on in terms of understanding that all that we encounter, all that makes up the field of experience or the sense of ourself is something that is supported by many other things that is dependent on and so closely interwoven and dependent upon so much, in fact ultimately everything else, that we can't really separate one thing from another in absolute terms. Now this, as an idea, as a concept, is sometimes quite hard to get a handle on. We might think, hmm, what's he talking about? Him over there, to me over here. <laughs> that doesn't make sense, because it's pretty clear. It seems like I'm over here, you're over there. I'm not arguing with that. But what happens if we start to examine this experience that we so take for granted as representing that sense of personal, individual, independent, separate existence. What if we start to examine what's actually going on here? Looking at this heart-mind-body process, you know, there are sights, sounds, smells, tastes, touches, body sensations, and thoughts. That's what's happening. Nobody in this room or anywhere else has ever had an experience of something that wasn't one or a combination of those. That's what we experience, all of us, as human beings. Sight, sound, smell, taste, touch and thoughts. And what we call emotions is a mixture of usually thoughts and feelings in our body. Sensations, essentially, that affect us in certain ways. So they're within that field. And if we look, we can notice them, we can be aware of them, and hopefully we are, at least some of the time here, since that's what we're encouraging ourselves to be aware of. We, we start to see, yeah, there's the breathing, and then there's a sound, there's a sensation, and there's a thought, well, I wish I didn't have that sensation, I'd rather have some other sensation, okay, it's a thought. We see there's a capacity we have to know all of this experience, to be conscious of it. But often behind or woven through what's going on is a sense of a story we're telling ourselves. That it's me who's having these experiences. It's me to whom this is happening. It's me who will be subject to it in the future and was in the past. To this flow of sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, thought that's just flickering through consciousness. And sometimes we hook onto one and it seems kind of more solid and real. But, you know, I'm sure... You've all had the experience, as I certainly have, of being really in a very solid pattern of thinking and then at some point you realise, actually, it's a complete story. And it just dissolves, just as the, the snail. It didn't even disappear. It was never there to disappear. 
one just suddenly saw the reality of, oh, that was constructed, created, fabricated, unreal. And these experiences that are happening are changing all the time, changing all the time. The more we pay attention, the more it stands out how much they're changing. The more we're unconscious and asleep, the more it appears that things are quite steady, fixed, stable, reliable. This is challenging. It's not always what we wanted to hear. And so there's a certain attachment to staying in a semi-conscious state of not really seeing the flux and fluidity, the, the vulnerability and the evanescence of what we call our life. And we're not in control of it, as people have said and mentioned, you know. One of the frustrating things about meditation is our mind doesn't do what we tell it to. We try and get it to be quiet and it doesn't. Tell it to be nice and it gets angry. All sorts of ways in which we see that even this most intimate part of what we imagine to be me isn't in my control. What do we make of that? How do we relate to and understand the significance of this? It's not just evidence of you know, failure at meditation. And it's absolutely no failure. It's really an important thing to see that our mind doesn't do what we tell it. We say, watch the breath, and it thinks, no, I want to tell stories. I'd really, I'd really rather think about something that's painful. You know, if it was up to me, it wouldn't do it at all. But clearly it's not up to me. It does that sometimes. It scares me. So what would it mean to contemplate that maybe these experiences are not something that we possess or own? They don't refer to or reflect a owner in the way in which we've habitually thought about it. I mean, we have the sense of being here, existing, but it's sort of based on a really unexamined sense of an ongoingness. But, you know, we're... All the experiences, all the feelings, all the thoughts, all the things that have happened to you in your life up till now, where are they now? Do they exist? Can you find them? Could you point to one? No, they're gone, completely gone. There's nothing of it left. The very physical tissues of this body are gone from what they were ten years ago. There's a few, hopefully a few brain cells and maybe a few sort of crusty bits in the bones that stay pretty steady, but pretty much the rest of it's gone and will be again in less than 10 years actually, but that's kind of, it changes. And the inner life, likewise. Now where's the mind that you had when you were 10 years old? We might have some feelings associated with it or memories arising from it, but they're just happening now. And, you know, where's the body and where's the thoughts and feelings and experiences you're going to have which we tend to mostly assume we are going to have in the future. They're not sitting in a cupboard waiting for us somewhere to pick them up, take them off the hanger and put them on. They don't exist. They're not there. Yet somehow we persist in a kind of cosy imagination that it's all out there, waiting for us to get to it. And when we get there, it'll have a little label on it, you know, a little sign so we know that, oh, this is mine, it's not somebody else's. You know, I don't get my brother's ones or, you know... Something like that. 
one of my, you know, workmates. I want to get the ones that are for me. It makes no sense. And yet, at some level, that's what we do. That's how we imagine there's this kind of projection of past and future that gives us a sense of ongoing continuity and locates us, it seems, as something or someone who's having all of these experiences. But these ideas and beliefs we have about who we are are just ideas, beliefs. The images and the roles, the stories that we tell ourselves, they're just stories. The functionality of our life when we do something, whether it be tying our shoes or eating some food or performing some complex task, these things happen, yes, of course. And yet, when we add to it a sense of me in a, in a way that's separated from the world, in a way that imagines that somehow I'm over here and everything else is over there. When we add that to it, and it's an addition, it's something we do in our minds, we feed into, we reinforce, and, or in fact we create, but we've been doing it so long we, we believe it's already there, the sense that there is a world here of discrete separate events and people and things. And it's not true. So, we're asked to contemplate what this might mean. One of the ways it shows is that often the things that are most intimate or important, we realize have their own life. There isn't something or someone separate from them called me, in charge of making them all happen in the way we imagine. And the analogy that one of my teachers used, which I uh, really enjoy, is a, a bit like a, um, going on an ocean journey in a sailboat. And you're, you know, you're staring into the wind and you're working with the sails and there's the currents and the, the storms and the calm, but after a while you realize that a lot of the time the boat doesn't really seem to be going where you were pointing at or trying to make it go. Does anyone have that kind of experience in their life? You know, I was trying to go this way and I went that way. And so after a while you start wondering, okay, you know, I'm working really hard at this, but what's going on? And so the sailor goes down under the deck and has a look in the, um, the uh, sort of the, the mechanics of the uh, equipment and he realizes that the steering wheel isn't attached to the rudder. I mean, steering this way. Why isn't it going this way? Well, sometimes it is going this way. It must be working. But it was never actually the person at the steering wheel determining the direction. It's a little bit scary. But, you know, to a large extent, that's actually how it has already been for much of our life. And what tends to happen is we put a lot of pressure on ourselves to somehow steer the boat in a certain direction. It's not to say we don't have an influence over what's going on. Of course we do. But the sense that we're not really in charge of it in the way we imagine. If we see this, if we understand this, then we can really start to release a lot of the pressure we put on ourselves, the blame we and the judgment we often put on ourselves for the fact that things didn't work out the way we wished them to. That often leads us to conclude somehow that it's my fault, that I did it wrong that the boat went that way and it's because I must have been lousy at steering. No, it's just that we're not, we don't have a steering wheel attached to the rudder. 
we can move the sails around. That makes a difference. But there's a lot more going on than the bit we're inputting. And in that metaphor, of course, it's the wind, it's the currents, it's the water. And the way we tend, one of the ways we tend to isolate and separate ourselves, particularly around the difficult and the struggle and the challenges we encounter in life, is we imagine it's happening to me. As if over here where it's happening, and I'm not saying it's not happening, but as if it's happening over here and it's not happening over there. Nobody else is having that experience. And yet the reality is that we all experience things that are really difficult, painful at times. You know, the Buddha spoke of birth, aging, sickness, death, as the things the body is subject to that are really hard. He spoke of grief, sorrow, lamentation and despair as things we encounter in the hearts. And we all encounter these. He spoke about being associated with what we dislike, being separated from what we like and not getting what we want. And these things are difficult experiences that we have you know, with our minds, essentially. And we all recognize those experiences. There's something universal about suffering. When we see that, it connects us. It starts to show us that actually there's commonality here. When we keep it quiet because we think it's wrong, it shouldn't be happening, it's not supposed to be that way, as, which is often what we imagine or believe, then we feel very isolated, separated, disconnected in our bubble of struggle or challenge or fear or pain. And it seems to reinforce a sense of being separate with me and my pain. If we start to see and if we hear and if we recognise how prevalent this is, that we all encounter this, that it's part of the nature of what's here. It's not all of what's here, because equally there is beauty. There is preciousness, there is love. There are many wonderful things in our lives too. But those two also aren't somehow separate. Those qualities we notice when we're in contact with them more easily and obviously lead to a sense of contact, of connection, of feeling a more porous sense of what we imagine this experience to be. And what happens is we pay attention more carefully as we, as we really feel more deeply into the experience is the sense of solidity that's born out of either not paying careful attention to or reacting very strongly against what's happening to take hold of or to push away. That as that starts to soften, there's a certain porousness, a fluidity that we start to experience, that we start to sense, in which the sense of experience and the thing we're experiencing starts to be revealed as, as an interactive process rather than an event happening to an observer or an object encountered by a subject. There's actually something dynamic and alive happening in which those encounters are revealing a relatedness rather than a separatedness. So when we reflect on this, what's important is to be asking the questions, not to be forming answers out of this. It's really easy to pick up this teaching that's really asking us to look at carefully, well, what does it mean 
that there is this conscious existence taking place here. What does it mean? It's not to say, well, well, I thought I had a self, but Buddha said I don't, so I guess I haven't. And, you know, without trying to figure out where that self went that I used to have, or, you know, how am I supposed to, what do I do here now? It's like it's not about taking a position of this or that, but actually opening the field up from the conclusions that we've made. Because at some level it's useful and functional to know that, yeah, this is me and that's you, and that when I'm having my lunch, if I start trying to put a mouthful of food into the person sitting beside me saying, well, it's all one, it's really not going to work, is it? So there's a certain functionality. It's like, yeah, we have responsibility for that which is immediate and which we're directly present to, we can say. And yet we also have a larger responsibility for everything. And everything has a responsibility for this thing. When we try and organise that in our thinking mind, it kind of struggles. It has to say, yay or nay, this or that. And what I find is a more useful way to hold and handle the territory is just to let it be in the realm of something less certain, something more open. Just, hmm, okay, so what does that mean? All things arise in relationship to all things. Nothing exists independent of all the things that it arises out of, which are arising out of any number of other things, and likewise ad infinitum. So for functional purposes, yes, here, me, you, there, but in terms of what's real, if we try and live a life of separateness, it's painful beyond belief. If we start to live in the sense of that connectedness, the suffering, the pain, the struggle, and the sense of something lost or missing or gone, that so often we're trying to looking for, trying to find somewhere out there, it starts to dissolve in on itself because the very movement away from this here and nowness, looking for something that we imagine isn't here. That very movement creates the appearance, and it's only an appearance, but it's a painful one, of the separateness, of the disconnect, of the out-of-touch-withness that kind of lies at the core of what we're trying to resolve in our life. And the settling back into the allowing ourselves to land without trying to fix a definition of what it is to be this that is simply conscious, awake, present, knowing and sensitive, responsive, alive. We can use all those words and we see they're kind of open. There's no conclusion to be formed and yet we're not left without a way to speak about what's happening or a way to engage with what's happening. To leave it open is really to allow ourselves to more consciously and fully enter into the openness, the vastness and the the freedom and peace that's right here. 
that doesn't take away from the need to take care of things in the world, but that actually allows everything to be seen in its rightful context and to begin to make sense. And for this, we we practice really being here fully, coming back again and again as we need to, and as we do, no matter how many times. Because right here, in the very midst of it all, for all of its challenges and confusions at times, this is the life that we're looking for, the truth that we're yearning for, the peace and the freedom that in our heart of hearts we love. And something in us knows that. Or we wouldn't be here. And something in us doesn't quite yet know that fully. Or we wouldn't be here. So here we are. So let's sit quietly together for a few moments. So may we all, in our practice here and through our lives, come to see deeply the way things are, to penetrate the veil of surface appearances, and come to rest in the truth of life, at peace and in freedom. For our own, welfare, and for the welfare of all beings. 